0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. I'd to just say uh, briefly
1: to welcome Carla, Chorro, Reverend Choro Antonaccio here. Uh, Choro has been student of Zen for 20 some years now and uh, practiced residentially at the Chapel Hill Zen Center since 2005. She's t- done uh, practice periods at all three temples in San Francisco. San Francisco's Zen center city center, Green Gulch Farm, and mostly at Tassajara. And uh, she's here with her husband, Bunkai, who's also a priest. and
2: Stealthily sitting in the back there. <laughs> Stealthily <laughs> sitting, sitting, back.
1: sitting back there. And uh, both of them are, there's a rumor... <laughs> <laughs> that they are, they've been house hunting here in Austin. So if uh, such a time comes when they relocate here, we will be uh, able to welcome them with open arms and you have already gotten a chance to get to know them a little bit. So thank you very much for coming.
2: Thank you for having us. It's great to be back in Austin. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'll try to speak up have a cold so I'm a little froggy. Um, if you can't hear me, just, or if my voice drops as I'm giving the talk, just please put your hand up and I'll try to keep my eyes on the audience and speak up or hold this device. We have the same problem in Chapel Hill, microphones. Um, so I wanted to say how happy I am to be here again. Um, uh, Bunkai and I were here in March and April uh, for a visit and I've been to Austin a couple times before, even before Mako got here, Um, but, uh, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, to give this talk, to practice with you, Um, and it's very encouraging to see so many people here on a Saturday morning, Um, and I I hope you're here not just for the air conditioning, (laughs) (laughs) it's hot in North Carolina too right now. Um, So when Mako asked me, like, a week ago, oh, would you like to give the Dharma talk? (laughs) I thought, hmm, what have I got already in my Dharma talk bag of tricks that I could possibly offer here that might be helpful to to you all? And um, so I'm giving this talk, um, you know, what is Zazen good for? um, And we'll see what you you think. Uh, I'm happy to take questions at the end, or... uh, have comments, objections, whatever, and also over tea and cookies, but I'm going to just sort of go through the talk and read it, trying to stay engaged with you, Um, but I really do welcome feedback and uh, interaction. So Zazen, Um, this is my topic today. Zazen is uh, sometimes called Zen meditation. Um, Literally, it means sitting Zen, and so when we say sitting, this is what we're talking about. Right, za Zen, sitting zen. And you know, probably if you're here, you think there's a reason to be here, sitting, listening to this talk. And I think all of us, you know, ask ourselves. It's like I, I thought I could also title this talk. She persisted. Um, <laughs> you know, why is sitting so highly valued? It's it's kind of a it's a good question. You know, what do we do it for? And, you know, what do we hope for? What do we aspire to? And I think, you know, when we come to practice, this is a really big question. Um, I was, Mako let the cat out of the bag that we were looking at houses yesterday, we talked to a realtor at the end of the day and mentioned the Austin Zen Center, and he immediately said, oh, I need to do that. (laughs) And this is kind of a common refrain these days. Like, I need to do something, right? So we come here for some reason he seemed sincere. Um, anyway. <laughs> I really did. Um, so this is a question that when we start practice and it persists, um, even as we persist. And I want to say that this talk originated um, in my experience with a group I led almost two years ago now um, that focused on how to sustain Zen practice for people who had been introduced to Zen meditation. We have a weekly introduction, and we have a six-week class introducing people to gradually to increasingly lengthy periods of sitting and also the forms of practice that we use in Chapel Hill. Um, so these people had taken the six-week class, most of them, or had been at least doing some sitting, but are busy people, you know, with families and jobs and all the rest of it. And so for whatever reason, they are mostly not regulars at formal sitting at the Zendo. So in this group meeting, which we went for about a month, we sat for half an hour without any you know, rigmarole, no service, no chanting, we just sat for half an hour and then we talked about practice in our lives and a lot of the discussion was what the aspiration to practice was about. And you know, the sitting was really settled and very quiet. I think people really liked sitting together. So part of sitting is sitting together in our practice. And the questions and the discussion were really very alive and interesting. And, you know, I, it wasn't a class, so I didn't have a formal teaching to offer, but I tried to find some readings that might spark some discussion or be useful you know, to a pretty diverse group of people, all adults. So in advance of the first meeting, I really didn't know what was going to happen. I decided to share this teaching by a Japanese Zen teacher named Kodo Sawaki or Sawaki Kodo. Um, also known as Homeless Kodo. And uh, there's a, Mako and Tim put together a flyer with a beautiful set of pictures of him, you know, looking like the severe traditional Zen master with this amazing face. If you haven't seen the flyer, you can get a taste of what he looked like by looking at it. And he's the one who said, famously, Zazen is good for nothing. And apparently he declared this all through his life, his long life of being, a homeless monk. He was somebody who had no temple of his own and traveled the length of Japan after the war in particular um, to teach, to offer teaching and to offer teaching to everyone. Um, so this is his answer to, what is, uh, to why we do it. It's not good for anything. Good for nothing. And so I thought talking about this would you know, provoke some discussion among this group of people who were interested in coming together to support something that surely they saw as valuable and of benefit. And along, uh, to introduce people to this, I shared an essay in Tricycle magazine, which was written by this somewhat iconoclastic Zen teacher that I think some of you will know, Brad Warner. Do people people familiar with him? Yeah. And his essay on this, Good for Nothing Zazen, was very accessible, but I thought I should kind of dig deeper before I uh, opened it up for a discussion. And um, ultimately, based on that meeting and that discussion, I decided to create this talk about it. It's a really startling statement for contemporary Americans. We're doing this thing, devoting all this time to something that's good for nothing. Right? And yet it's the focus of Zen Buddhism. Right? Za Zen, sitting Zen. So in this tricycle cycle uh, essay, Warner says, Brad Warner says, Sawaki Kodo, Sawaki Roshi, wasn't employing some kind of skillful means right, by saying something he didn't really believe. He really did believe that Zazen is good for nothing. Brad says, he wasn't being mystical and saying it's good, wink, wink, for nothing, nudge, nudge. Nope, he really meant it. Zazen really is good for nothing. It's useless. Absolutely useless, says Brad Warner. You know, and he acknowledged that this is difficult to accept because it is very often clear That zazen has positive effects, right? We might want to believe this teaching, but we think, well, yeah, but it does have effects, and they're good. Uh, For Brad, he says, for he himself, he feels better when he sits, and he feels more alive, and you will have your own experience. You know, we've all heard about the health benefits, the mental health benefits, increases in workplace productivity, um, improved relationships, and more associated with meditation, and, and not just with Zen meditation. And you know, Brad says in this essay, there are a dozen books out right now that will tell you exactly what meditation is for. Right? So Sawaki Kodo is pushing against that. Now, good for nothing, it turns out, this phrase in English, because Sawaki Kodo was a Japanese speaker, good for nothing is actually Shohaku Okamura Roshi's translation of Kodo's Japanese expression. And for those of you who don't know, Okamura Roshi is a Japanese teacher who is uh, teaching in Indiana, but is in this lineage Sawaki Kodo, Uchiyama Roshi, and Okamura Roshi. They're in the same lineage. And they really emphasize just sitting, period after period after period, of sitting, zen without toys. And, that's what and in an interview, in another interview in TriCycle magazine, Okamura said, that he consciously chose this English idiomatic expression, good for nothing, right? What a good for nothing. Good for nothing as in worthless to emphasize the futility of assigning value to zazen. To Okamura Roshi, it meant this phrase that zazen is good in and of itself with no evaluation or measuring of worth or of results and knowing this intention interpretation, you know, I feel it might have been more helpful to say zazen is beyond value, something like that, right? Beyond value, beyond compare. <laughs> but this is a little skillful on Okamura's part. It would not have gotten our attention in the same way. By saying good for nothing, right? What? <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Similarly, you know, Brad Warner his sense for him, his sense of what Sawaki Roshi meant by good for nothing is that true practice has no goal. And we hear about this no goal in other uh, contexts. Brad says, the only way one really gets any of the most important benefits of meditation practice is by giving up on the notion that there are any benefits to meditation practice. But wait. (laughs) Despite the disclaimer that Zazen is good for nothing, Brad just seemed to say that there is a benefit, right? The only way to get the benefit is by giving up on benefits so we just start going around (laughs) you know our brains start going around and around and in fact you know there is a way to approach the question of goals and Sawaki Roshi actually does help us in uh, his teachings that we have and he was a prolific writer and most of it has not been translated into English so we have like just a bit of what he uh, offered over a long time of teaching Um, there's a book called The Zen Teachings of Homeless Kodo and in it he himself is quoted as follows. This is of course English. What is go- what is zazen good for? Nothing. We should be made to hear this good for nothingness so often that we get calluses on our ears
3: <laughs>
2: and practice good for nothing zazen without any expectation. Otherwise, he says, our practice really is good for nothing. And to me, you know, this is kind of sly, right? you know, having no expectation seems to be what the practice is good for, and it's a pretty fundamental thing and, you know, never mind saving all beings right, and lowering your blood pressure at the same time (laughs) (laughs) certainly not self-improvement but if we practice without any expectation then our practice really is good for something you know, is this just all mind games having no goal is actually having a goal right, so That's where we kind of wind up. But Sawaki Roshi goes on and offers more. He said, we don't practice to attain enlightenment. We practice dragged around by enlightenment. (laughs) Dragged around by enlightenment. We are watched by zazen, scolded by zazen, (laughs) obstructed by zazen, dragged around by zazen, and we spend our lives in tears. This is the happiest life, isn't it? <laughs> That's what he says. And here he equates, in this, you know, this statement, he equates enlightenment with zazen, right? which is kind of the Soto teaching of zazen and practice are one thing, enlightenment and practice, rather, are one thing. Now Sawaki Kodo's disciple, Uchiyama Roshi, whom I mentioned a moment ago, and who was Okamura's teacher, commented on this teaching of Sawaki that we practice in the midst of delusion without knowing whether we will fall to hell or be born in the pure land. We practice without expecting an outcome, a particular outcome. But, Uchiyama says, practice, and this is the quote, it exists within our efforts just to be ourselves. In everyday life, he says, there are rainy, windy, and stormy days. But whatever conditions we may encounter, we just continue to sit as the stability of our entire lives." That's the end of the quote. And this statement brings together two fundamental points into one. Having no expectations on the one hand, and to be or realize ourselves. So what is this realizing ourselves? Okamura Roshi says that Homeless Kodo, his Dharma grandfather, was a complex and variable person, and he is notorious for being totally out there. As a Zen, even for a Zen master, <clears throat> he did not concern himself with outward appearances, any kind of convention or consistency, even. But presented apparently presented very different facets or sides to uh, whoever he encountered, depending on whom he was with. He, there are wonderful pictures of him playing with children in this inc- totally free way, you know, like the Pied Piper. And yet he was this really kind of severe person at the same time. What was fundamental to him, the ground of his being, despite this variability, this surface variability, was zazen. And Uchiyama Roshi said that his teacher's greatness was his having wasted, and that's his term, wasted his whole life on zazen. And this greatness was evident despite the fact that Sawaki Roshi was in the Japanese army during the war, And apparently, you know, didn't hold back. He fully participated in doing what soldiers do in war. And he was seen by older Japanese as a war hero. That was how they saw him, in addition to being a Zen master. And it was very difficult for Okamura Roshi to accept this side of his Dharma grandfather. But Uchiyama Roshi was somewhat matter-of-fact about it. And I think these observations about Sawaki's character can be viewed through another kind of startling and pithy statement that Sawaki himself made. He said, all human beings, without exception, are in reality homeless. It's a mistake to think we have a solid home. Now, of course, the term homeless brings up a lot for us in the contemporary America, but this is his name, really, Sawaki Hodo, Homeless Kodo. Right? This is the homelessness of which he is speaking. Right, <clears throat> And Okamura kind of talks about this as understanding homeless as the Zazen, or the Zen rather, of no abiding, right? No fixed place. In Japanese, this is Mujusho Nehan. It's a form of nirvana. We do not abide in suffering or samsara because of wisdom, and we don't abide in nirvana or enlightenment either because of compassion. Right? These are the two sides of enlightenment, compassion and wisdom the two sides of awakened being, which go together like the wings of a bird, balanced and functioning together. And I would add to this that what makes Sawaki Roshi variable and complex and fearless and unconventional isn't just his way of practicing without a fixed place and gives him his name. It was also that he was always becoming. He was always codependently arising. And he didn't confuse his karmic characteristics with any fixed self. When he was a young man, and before he became a Zen monk, he was a soldier, and he fought, and he killed. But his attitude to war was kind of not clear cut either. You know, he had an army pension, and he used it first to support his family, and later he printed Buddhist teachings, and he gave them away. So that's how he turned that aspect of his being. He knew that the money was tainted, and he did something to advance the Dharma with it, but he was not caught by his karma, or he would not have been able to become homeless Kodo. So this is a complex issue that we may want to talk about, but I wanted to say something about his life. So steadiness of practice, (laughs) zazen is the stability of our lives, is the ground of being yourself, just exactly yourself which Suzuki Roshi, you know, the founder of our lineage, expressed as, when you are you, Zen is Zen. And that ties in with another teaching of Sawaki Kodo. Um, and he gave this to Uchiyama Roshi. And I really like this teaching. I encountered it a long time ago, and it really spoke to me. Um, Uchiyama, <laughs> unlike Sawaki Roshi, was timid and weak. He was not a fierce person at all. You know. Didn't have a lot of confidence, and didn't have this very strong personality. And he expressed the hope to his teacher that by practicing like his teacher, who was strong and fierce, he would become like him. And his teacher disabused him of this idea and told him that he, homeless Kodo, was the way he was because that's who he was. That, that was his nature. And Uchiyama didn't really want to believe this, so he practiced hoping for change. Right? Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Uchiyama compared himself to a violet and said, Sawaki was like a rose, you know, this strong flower with thorns. <clears throat> but ultimately, Uchiyama came to understand that Sawaki Roshi's charisma and his vitality were, and this is a quote, merely karmic attributes, as natural for him as a cat catching mice. They were not dependent on his practice. A violet doesn't need to be a, violet, uh, to be a rose, both should just bloom. That was his teaching. And hearing this in the past, I kind of chafed a little bit. You know, I felt that saying that a violet can only be a violet was saying, just accept your place and do your best. Right? And this could be a teaching that gets misused right? to fix us in a particular social uh, category, for example. Right? So it could be dangerous and disempowering if we hear it one way. You know, it could be close to saying that because you are a particular gender or you have a particular skin color or any number of other ways of being human, that you have an assigned position and you should just be content with it. Right? But that is not what this is saying. <clears throat> Uchiyama Roshi is saying something else, and this is a quote from him. If a violet doesn't become a violet, you know, it doesn't become itself, you spoil your life force. This is absurd, he says. Try to express your life force to the fullest. You want to know whether you're a violet or a rose. He says, I don't know, and you don't need to know. Life is possibility. It's not fixed. You don't need to decide what you are. Just live yourself and naturally bloom your own flower. The end of the quote. And it seems to me that's what Sawaki Roshi did, supported by Zazen, and what we can do. That's what we're called to do. This reminds me of the bumper sticker that says, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> and that's always been funny and rung true with me. You know, while I was struggling with worrying, was I a violet, not a rose? I wanted to be a rose. Um, but I took comfort in being at least unique, right? We all are non-reputable instances of being time, the intersection of being and time. And the self that Uchiyama points to The one you should bloom is not the one that does not realize some separate sense of value um, or compare it to anything. He said, it's impossible for a fish to say, I've swum the whole ocean, or for a bird to say, I've flown the entire sky. But fish do, in their swimming, swim the whole ocean, and birds do fly the entire sky. We function totally as ourselves. This is the boundless universal self Says Okumura, This is the self that we wake up to, the one that blooms its life force as one flower, the one fish that swims the whole ocean, and the bird right overhead that flies the whole sky. And realizing this boundless, timeless, universal self, Sawaki says, is like a thief breaking into an empty house. <laughs> Isn't that great?
1: <laughs> you realize
2: who you are, you're like a thief breaking into an empty house there's nothing to take. There's nobody to run from, even though you went to all that trouble to get in, right? Nothing to gain and nothing to lose. Um, there's one more teacher that I'd like to just quote before I close, and that's Barry Maggot, who is not in our lineage, a psychotherapist and a Zen teacher who's in the lineage of Joko Beck. Some of you may be familiar with her books, which are very helpful to me. Um, and he said this recently right, about motivations to practice in order to get something. Right? Remember, this is a th- psychotherapist talking. He says, Gaining ideas are not obstacles, but merely objects in the landscape, like rocks and trees. Everybody practices for the wrong reasons. Everybody's practice must begin with self-centered, curative fantasies. But that just rang a big bell. <laughs> And similarly, Cohen Franz, who is a teacher uh, in uh, in Soto Zen uh, who's practicing in Nova Scotia and uh, writes quite a bit uh, on the internet and sometimes in Buddha Dharma magazine, he says, one day we wake up and realize that all the compelling reasons for leaving the zendo, right? Like you sit there and think, why am I here? I need to get out of here. I need a cup of coffee. I need a cigarette. He says, all those things are not going to go away. And that maybe this is not going to give us what we were looking for, but we stay anyway. And he says, this real zazen begins on that day. Practice begins on that day, and our lives begin on that day. From this moment forward, he says, anything is possible because we have let go of what we needed it to be. Right? And I find his teaching very encouraging and inspiring, so I want to end with his instructions for zazen. This is a piece that he wrote uh, for his own sangha, and it's kind of pattern on Dogen, Roshi, Dogen Zenji's fascicle called Fukan Zazengi, which I think a lot of you are familiar with, which is the instructions for Zazen. Zazen recommended for all people, says Dogen. Right? And I like this rephrasing, um, and I wanted to end on a note of encouragement. which I'm encouraging myself as much as you. So this is what Koan France says, and these are not all of them, but some of them. Right? It says, first, choose this place. Whatever place that is. Choose this place. Whenever you can, sit with others. When you can't, sit with
1: others.
2: (laughs) Let others sit with you. Do not put yourself into sitting. Come empty-handed. Do not make zazen. Let sitting reveal itself. Do not use zazen for this or that. Sitting is neither means nor end. If not full lotus, if not full lotus, half lotus. If not half lotus, rest the foot of the raised leg across the cap of the lower leg. Or kneel. Or sit in a chair. Remember that this body is the Buddha's body. Do not harm it. Also, do not underestimate it. How long must one sit? How many breaths? Ancient Buddhas did not measure zazen in minutes or hours. Be the force of gravity pulling you deep into the ground. Be the weight of a flame. Do not move from this posture. With every cell in your body, every drop of blood, every inch of skin, constantly do not move. Zazen is non-doing, is, sorry, is not non-doing. It is not non-thinking. Zazen is a deep dreamless sleep on fire. It is clutching a boulder to your belly at the bottom of the cool ocean. Roots penetrate and plunge downward into the rough textures of the earth. A cloud dissolves into open sky. That's Cohen France. So my aspirations, which brought me to the cushion, you know, my curative fantasies, my goals, my desires, my ideas, you know, wanting to be a different flower or a flower at all, these are all my persistent Fantasies you know that I now want to try to think of as features in my landscape and I hope with everybody else to just let these things be what they are right just let them go, let them be and maybe we all take our seats in the midst of delusion and just trust the practice. Thank you very much. Do we have time for a few questions? 10 50 degrees yes. okay there are any comments, questions, or objections. Yes?
0: Um, I really
3: like that uh, rose versus violet yeah. thing that Uchiyama uh, Roshi um, <clears throat> and Chihako Komura bring up. And I, I listened to a commentary about that, and Chihako Komura says, well, the thing about roses is that they're commercially valuable. <laughs> and, like, you know, we can yeah. sell them. Yeah. It's like sometimes people come to Zazen because they want to be Profitable or something, and they want to be, or they compare themselves to others and say, "I want to be like that. Right. I want to get more something. I want to make more money or be more together or whatever that other person has that I want, instead of being themselves and just being looking at themselves. It's like, well, maybe I'm just a, maybe I'm just a violet, and I don't have to like think of myself as like a profitable thing, I'm valuable, I have value like that. Yeah, I can be a good-for-nothing violet and still have be beautiful and the, and be an expression of the life force. And I thought that that, that was from Okamura. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's beautiful to, to come to practice like that. Because like I when I come sometimes to practice, I'm like, I'm doing stuff all day long and I'm trying to get things done and be productive and right. yeah my work. And then I come and sit down and I'm like, uh, I don't really, I don't want to live like that exactly. I just want to be, you know. Yeah. I have to always do that.
2: I think sitting is a great opportunity always. This is persistent also to just let it all go if you can. You know, I mean, it tends to trail me into sitting, you know, trying to just, like, you notice when you sit down and you're not doing anything, you're not looking at a screen or engage with something you suddenly realize how noisy you know it is inside and just even noticing that having the opportunity to notice that is a real benefit and say wow you know this is what my mind is like and as you say this is not really supporting the life force exactly you know at least the way we're often called upon to engage with things and be productive where we measure our worth and productivity but I think, you know, part of this teaching is pointing beyond even saying, oh, okay, I'm a violet and I'm going to bloom like a violet. It's just blooming, right, without even thinking, what kind of flower am I? Am I a little flower that, you know, perishes quickly? Or am I the strong flower that's commercially, you know, Tsuwaki Koto was commercially valuable. He, you know, he spread his teaching from one end to the other. He published columns in newspapers that were widely read. In a way, that's, I think, what Uchiyama was thinking. Do I want to be like that? And really, what he did was spend his life sitting in a very poor temple, you know, just sitting, sitting, sitting. I mean, these people like that—14 and 15, 50-minute periods a day, stopping only to eat and do a little work. You know, that was the, that was the kind of seshine they did. Right? No dharma talks, no, you know, nothing. No doksan, no, you know, practice discussion. Just sit, sit, sit. So he he took that up from his teacher, and he stopped worrying about being any kind of, any particular kind of flower, it's just bloom. And, and that's kind of what, what I'm, it's a goal, I admit, right? But that's kind of my direction, maybe I'll call it, is just like, who cares what kind of flower? Just, if I don't let it, if I don't bloom it, then I'm wasting my life. Yes.
1: I guess I have a question about, so Zazen is good for nothing. Is that different than any other activity? that we engage
2: in? I don't know if anybody could hear that. It's a really good question. If Zazen is good for nothing, is that like, just like any other activity is good for nothing? I think Zen would say that we put ourselves completely into everything we're doing. And we might have a, something we were trying to accomplish. right? If you, if you look behind the scenes at any Zen center, or even if, like today, it's a very busy place. right? Chairs to set up, chairs to take down, flyers to make, things to organize. So, and we want to get things done. Right? But also, while we're doing it, we're just doing it. And when we do soji, you know, the temple cleaning, Mm -hmm. when the clappers get hit, we just stop, Mm -hmm. even if we're not done, right? We clean, we just clean when we're cleaning, and sometimes we don't finish. So that's a teaching also, that put yourself wholeheartedly into something, and, you know, the leaves are gonna get blown around again immediately, right? It seems useless. But while we're there, we're just doing that. that, that, that is, there's no gap between you and the doing. You're just expressing your life force in that moment, in that activity. So zazen, yeah, we take it off the cushion. That is the point of it. But we do often have goals, right? Get down to the zazen, and get to the zazen on time. Right. Yeah. Yes, Pat.
1: Well, I just want to say one, one way to realize that this is true is to get old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one way to realize this is because. the end of your life, you know, all of this toing and throwing just.
2: Yeah, what's the point? I know. Anymore. Yeah, I know some Zen teachers who are very busy running around, traveling a lot, and then I think some of the older people that I know just say, it's all right here, you know, I don't need to go anywhere and I don't need to add to the carbon mm-hmm. you know, footprint that I have. Um, I'm not there yet, but I'm sure it'll happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll yeah, be sure of that. <laughs> um, Ernest is Do you see this uh, kind of good-for-nothing philosophy
3: as in conflict with Rinzai Zen teachings in some way?
2: That's a, You know, I've n- never practiced in a Rinzai temple, but I did have a paragraph I cut out of this, which was to say that there would seem to be a conflict between Soto Zen, you know, where we sometimes say Shikantaza, which is just exactly sitting and nothing else, right? Shikan, anything, is just that thing. So just exactly sitting Zen. That's what Soto Zen practices. You hear a lot in Rinzai Zen about trying to achieve Kensho, trying to achieve insight awakening, right, after enlightenment and, you know, people, sh- they're shouting and there's blows and there's running and, it, you know, and actually it did bring me to Zen in a way. I read some of that and I thought, I want that. I want that experience. I want to wake up. I want to have the thunderbolt, you know. Um, and I, I ended up not doing that partly because I read Zen Mind Beginner's Mind and thought, oh, this this is it, you know, it's that, so here I am, a Soto Zen priest. So you'd have to ask a Rinzai practitioner. There's a big debate right now online, there's a big fight about this not too long ago between Rinzai people who say, those Soto people don't sit with their koans and they're never going to wake up. It's all, you know, they don't really wake up. You can't verify that they're awake because they don't pass this koan curriculum. We know what we're doing. (laughs) But the Soto people actually do use koans. Many teachers refer to koans and use them. and, And Dogen had his own collection of 300 koans and referred to them all the time in his teaching. So in some ways, I don't think it's a style and emphasis sort of thing. And maybe what the Rinzai people wake up to is, this is all good for nothing, right? (laughs) They just came at it from another way, you know. I think that's that's probably it, you know. But they all want to be roses, I got to tell you. (laughs) Yes, Nick. I
3: heard a definition of practice that it's the participation in, a, in an act with the intent of becoming better. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, this idea of good for nothing, I, the, the idea of play being a self-sufficient act, I wonder if we play as children and as adults, maybe it's um, <laughs> But it's funny that we call it practice because it seems that there's inherent in that, in calling it practice, that we're
2: aiming at almost some-
3: Yeah,
2: Yeah. and I wonder if that's a translation thing, or... Yeah, I'm sure... Actually, what is the word that gets translated? as practice? Do you know what it is? Ah. Yeah, I'm not... I don't know the Japanese word, and that's a good question. Um, It does have this sense, you know, it's like that old joke, you know, how do I... You're in New York. How do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the person you ask is practice, Right. (laughs) Um, I certainly, you know, I had to practice piano. So, yeah, it definitely has that association of we're perfecting something, we're trying to get better, we are going to have a performance, and we practice so that we don't fall on our faces, right? So there is that kind of idea in, in our culture and in our language. It has many, there's a lot of baggage. Um, but I, I think that in Zen there is a sense of refinement, you know, and although it's the same practice from beginning to end, it's never the same experience, and somebody once asked Mel Weitzman when he came to visit us, uh, Sojin Mel Weitzman, is your, what's your zazen like now? Is it different than when you were young? And he kind of, you know, rocked back and forth a little, and then he said, I'd say it's sort of deeper, more settled, but it's not really different, not really different and, you know, if, if anybody's themselves, in my experience, it's Mel Weitzman, is just, himself, you know, just completely himself. <laughs> and you can tell when you're with him, he's just exactly himself. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question, Nick, but I think that uh, we, we, we want to be more stable in our city. We want something, but we just got do it, and we see what it's like each time we do it.
3: What is, what is your comment on whether we should play as
2: a there is an expression at play in the fields of samadhi, you know, like playing in the fields of samadhi, that when you, that freedom that you can have in zazen and in extending zazen to your everyday life, play is a, is a, a word that's used in English to describe that freedom. So if you think of play as freedom... Yeah. I don't know how long we can go on. So What time? 11 or 4? A couple more minutes. Okay. Yeah.
1: I was just going to say... I thought of two things, but one was just the practice, maybe you, sometimes I think of it as more like, if you're practicing, I don't think of it as practicing medicine, but the word practice in that way, that you're just, this is, it's doing. Doing something. something. Just doing something. Um, and then we were talking about play, it just reminded me of a recently favorite phrase from Dogen about the mind practices the way, running barefoot, and
2: turning somersaults,
1: mm. um, which has that sense of plumbing.
2: Yeah, and, and there's also the phrase in Fukan in, uh, Zazengi, it's, you know, Zazen is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, which when you're sitting there with your knees aching, <laughs> it's like repose and bliss. Okay. <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to take up these. But they're good, you know, reminders. Like it can be like this is actually it, repose and bliss in the midst of whatever is happening. Can you turn somersaults even in this life of tears? You know that that uh, we we heard about. It's like disporting freely. Disporting freely. Who translates this stuff? Disporting freely. (laughs) (laughs) Who uses this language? Who says disport anyway? What? Who says disport? Who says disport? (laughs) Sometimes. Bunkai says to me, I've never heard a person use that word in conversation or come up with something. sport would be a good one. <laughs>
0: Did
2: you have a question, Bruce?
0: Well, I wanted to follow up as well on, on the words practice and play on those concepts. And I think one thing that I've been
2: toying with <coughs> just like playing right,
0: recently, is, yeah. and maybe it's because I'm reading um, Norman Fisher's mm. Lojong book, which we're going to be using in the practice period. It's called, the title is actually Training in Compassion. And so mm-hmm. I just like to hold up training alongside practice because it seems to have a little bit less of the baggage of getting somewhere. I mean, it's more like I'm new, so I'm being trained, right? Or I'm training like I'm in a gym, you know? So it's not necessarily, like, sequential. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just like I have to repeat this thing. For whatever Mm -hmm. reason, I have to keep doing it. Um, And as far as play, I remember something a choir director of mine once said... um, and, and when you're in a, in a choir that's really intent, that there's, it's work. There's a mm-hmm. lot of work. It's, it's physical, mental. It's, it's really demanding, and, and mindfulness. I mean, really is kind of the, the name of the game there. But he said, "You never say that we're going to work music. You say we're mm. playing music."
2: Mm. Interesting. We're
0: playing it, and there's effort that goes into it. But I, in my experience, that it, if, if you're putting too much effort into it, then it's not. There's no play. But if you're just, you know... I, one of the quotes in, in the morning program, we, we used to have this sheet of quotes and, and someone would read it off before the announcements in Corsoji. And I remember one of them was, um, I think Toynbee said it. It, it was, uh, the supreme accomplishment is to blur the line between work and play.
2: The supreme accomplishment, according to Toynbee, is to blur the line between work and play. Yes. You guys quote to- Toynbee <laughs> we we used to, we, you know, we,
0: we do other things now. <laughs> <laughs> we, Might we be my support. kind of place. We support. We support. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe that's a good one to end on. I think possibly. Right. Thank you very much. We can continue
3: over to cookies.